0: Any that is Anybody that is staying in here, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 6, uh, we're going to be looking at a sermon today titled, Called to Serve. And so last week, we looked at, at what we've talked about being the plan of God, how God brought the apostles that had been in jail out, uh, and they were told to go preach the gospel, to go pr- proclaim life, and that's what they do. And it's very clear that God's plan and intention for them Was to proclaim the gospel. Uh, And that's what they were called to do. It's always been his plan. It's a plan that cannot be shaken. And it's a plan that ends in victory. And that's what we are called to take part in as well. So that's what we looked at last week. And this week, we're picking up not long after that uh, in chapter six. What we see here is actually um, a a small point of contention within the early church. And then from that, uh, we see. A, a place where we're able to see kind of some, some nuts and bolts of how we are called to come together and accomplish the task we've been given. From this moment of contention that they have, we see a little bit of how the church can and should operate to fulfill the plan that God has. Uh, so with that, we're going to start in Acts chapter 6. We're going to go through from verses 1 through 7. So Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, "'It would not be right for us to give give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty.' But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the Word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us that we can come together and we can look at your word. We can see the example set uh, by the, those believers in, in Acts in the early church. And God, I pray that we can learn from their example. We can see how you would call us to live, that you, can, that you would convict each of us as we need to serve you more faithfully, that you would convict each of us of how we can serve you more faithfully, that you'll show us clearly what you're calling us to do. God, I pray that you'll be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're looking at this passage, we're looking at what's going on in the church. There's a few things happening. We see uh, some people, some, uh, some conflict, a little bit of a complaint because there's the Hellenistic Jews. So basically what this means, uh, the simplest way would be those who spoke Greek and those who spoke Hebrew. So you can imagine they have the same faith, different languages, can make it a little bit hard to all be on the same page all of the time. So there's this Disagreement or this complaint that the widows of the Greek Jews are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food in comparison to the Hebrew Jews' widows. And so that's what kind of is going on, and we're going to see what happens. The the first thing we see is that there is work to be done. There is work to be done. Even in this church, there are uh, things, even in this early church, there are things going on that have to happen. There are things beyond just the preaching of the gospel that have to be dealt with. And so one thing that this passage doesn't make abundantly clear was whether this complaint was fully valid or not. That's not really the issue I think that's at hand. This is a complaint rather than a statement of fact. The people that were the Greek widows felt like they were being overlooked, and so a complaint arises. What the apostles are dealing with here is the dealing with this complaint rather than whether this was actually happening or not. Because I I would assume if it was happening, there would be maybe someone that was doing something underhanded. That person might have been called out. But they are dealing with what is happening. Whether it is happening, it needs to be dealt with, or it is not happening, and they need to be assured that they are getting what is fair. Could be true, it could be false. That is not really, I think, the point of this passage. I don't know how earth-shattering this issue was in the life of the church but this passage is foundational in many ways to the church because the seven men that are selected to deal with this issue and others like it are, are widely regarded as the first deacons in the church. We're going to touch on that more later. The basic thing that we see is that there is work that needs to be done in the early church. The church, even then, was not perfect because there are people in the church and people are not perfect. I've heard it said before that the best part of ministry is the people, and the worst part of ministry is the people, because sometimes people are fantastic, and sometimes people are a little difficult, and so you have to deal with all parts of it, and even at this point, there's this complaint that's dealing with it that's going on. Now, this is where I think Bible translations are important. I think I would encourage you to read multiple Bible translations. Have your favorite, have the one that you love, have the one you grew up with, have the one that you acquired recently that that you understand the best. But read multiple, especially when you want to understand a passage to its fullest extent. And, And I would encourage you to find one or two from each category. An interlinear is the most literal you can find. This is where you'll see the Greek text and the word it means right below it. And sometimes those sentences aren't gonna make sense because it's using Greek grammar rather than English grammar. Then you have those that are a step past that. It's a translation, but they try to be as word for word as possible. Usually they kind of feel wooden when you read them, but they don't change the structure as much. That's like the NASB or the KJV. Then you have those that are kind of in the middle, the ESV and the CSB, that the CSB is what we're reading today. And then there's the thought for thought, those that take the intention of the passage and convey that, but sometimes the words aren't exactly what's being translated. That's like the NLT. It's very easy to read and understand, but it's a little less faithful to the original translation. That's why it's good to read multiple so you can get various parts of it. Because things can be translated accurately, and there can be still, th- still be things lost in translation. For example... As a dad, I love a good dad joke, right? Most dad jokes are puns, a play on words. And you could translate that play on words and replace it with something that means the same thing, and it wouldn't have the same impact. For example, if I were to say to you, I don't trust stairs. They're always up to something. You get it. Stairs go up to something. You could say the same thing with words that mean the same thing, and it wouldn't make any sense. I don't trust stairs. They're always conspiring. What does that mean? It makes no sense because the word conspiring is kind of a replacement for up to something, but it doesn't make sense. This can happen when we read the Bible if we don't see what the original words are at times. That's why I think it's best to look at multiple so you can see which direction that word you read is going. So this passage in particular, I think, has two places. We're going to look at one now and one a little later. The first word is in this translation. Uh, Other translations use the word I like better. It could be translated as a murmuring or a grumbling, the word uh, for complaint. So there arose a complaint from the Greek Jews. There arose a murmuring or a grumbling from the Greek Jews. And I feel like by the way this is handled and the way it's approached, this may be a more accurate translation of that passage. In every church church, There are many things that need to be done and dealt with that aren't necessarily the primary function of the church. We've all heard of the churches that split over where they're going to put the piano or the organ. These things have to be decided. But which side they go on is not the primary function of the church. There are things in the church that we can disagree upon. And there's even times where you're trying to... You all agree, but it's not maybe won't go exactly as it's hoped. And when these disagreements happen... There needs to be a way that they're dealt with so that God will still be glorified and honored. The problem occurs when these things lead to a murmuring or a grumbling. And I think I have found that the book of Acts in many ways kind of parallels and has a lot of parallels in Exodus because we see this happen early in the church, that the church is going, everything's happening, and there arises a murmuring of something that people aren't happy with. There's a discontentment about a situation. It reminds me of Exodus 16, chapter, or chapter 16, verse 2. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness because they didn't have, they were well, they didn't have the food that they thought they were going to have, or they did not, had not yet gotten the food they thought they would have. So a murmuring seems to be when a good thing is happening or has happened, the church is going well. We've read these multiple passages about how everyone is selling their possessions, and giving to one another. There's a daily distribution of food for all the widows. That's a great thing. Everyone's being fed, but a problem happens. There's discontentment. There's murmuring. Murmuring in itself, a complaint in itself is not bad, but it can lead to division. It can lead to a a fracturing within the church body because something small becomes a much bigger focus than it should be. So it needs to be dealt with. And and at times the murmuring is for a good reason if this was happening If someone was making sure that certain people didn't get food while others did that needs to be dealt with as well What we have to be careful of is as members of the body of christ We have to realize the power that each of us hold every person in the church And one of the illustrations i've heard that I think best Illustrates how we should deal with murmuring Is the idea that we all carry gasoline and water Each of us think of yourself as always carrying a can of gasoline and always a can of water and how those should both how they should be used Is when we have fires in the church now imagine there are good fires Fire is a good thing. We roasted some hot dogs. We had some s'mores this weekend. It's a good thing It gets out of that little container. It's not a good thing anymore One you want something to make the fire grow one you want something to make the fire not grow and so gasoline should be used in the church When there's a good idea, when we have an idea of ministry that wants to happen, someone's starting something new that's going to reach out into the community, it's going to help people connect with the gospel, we should pour gasoline on that idea. Encourage them. Give them what they need. Help volunteer and and share in that resource. And the water should put out the fires of discontent and murmuring and gossip and slander and all those things that seek to weasel the way into the church that shouldn't be there. So the gasoline on good things and the water on the bad things. And we all know that sometimes that gets flipped, and that's the problem. Sometimes there are people who will pour water on a good idea. I have heard of churches where there was a certain kind of ministry happening, and there were people within the church that, even though the ministry was succeeding and going well, they didn't like it because of the, the kind of people they were dealing with, weren't who they thought the church ought to be dealing with. That's a problem. That's a hard issue. They're pouring water on gospel ministry that's happening. And too often, gasoline gets poured on the things that shouldn't be poured on, that should be put out. Gossip happens, and the rumor spreads further. Slander happens, and and things get get spoken about people that shouldn't, and it leads to rampant discontentment and division in the church. So we have to remember as church members that we have a power to build up good and, and squash the bad and vice versa and we have to be aware of that. And so the twelve caught wind of this murmuring. They heard of this division, this discontentment within the body, and they realized that it needed to be dealt with. They could not allow this to spread and cause division and fracture the church. The point of this issue is that that there is something of importance, accusations of discrimination within the church body, but the twelve realized this is not what they need to be focused on. This is not a task that they can oversee and deal with in the way that it needs to, and also fulfill their calling to preach the gospel in how they know they are called to. So they realize they are not the ones that need to be dealing with it. This is where we must realize that in our life, we have to clarify our calling. There is work to, need to be done, but we must clarify our calling. You must clarify your calling. So the disciples did did not discount this work that needed to be done, they just realized that it was beyond the scope of their calling. Now, I mentioned before that the seven men chosen were were likely, are are referred to often as the first deacons in the church. The apostles occupied an office most similar to what we would call a pastor, uh, but also can be called an elder or overseer. Although the apostles, the 12 disciples, have clear distinctions between any other pastor or overseer or elder, there are things that are different, especially dealing with authority in their calling. This is an office of leadership within the church body, of preaching the Word of God and overseeing the church body, making sure that everything is going as it ought to be. All three of these words, pastor, elder, and overseer, refer to the same office within the church body. So some churches have one elder currently. That's how we function. I am the pastor, and I am, as far as I know, the only ordained pastor in our church. Um, And so we have one elder. Some churches have many elders, or as many elders as they have paid staff. So a church that has multiple pastors, a pastor, associate pastor, executive pastor, these would all be ordained pastors that are all leading in that capacity. Some churches have a plurality of elders where some are paid staff and paid pastors and others are lay elders. Those are people that have been identified from among the congregation to lead and serve but are not um, in a full-time ministry situation. But upon hearing this murmuring, the 12 realize that what needs to be dealt with goes beyond what they're capable of doing. They can't preach the word as they know they ought to and deal with this situation and others like it as they should be dealt with. They realize that something, someone needs to oversee this vital ministry within the body of Christ. So in the passage, the disciples said it would not be right for them to give up preaching the word to wait tables. Now, this is the other word that I don't think I like the translation of as much. This may better be translated as serve, and the Greek for this word is dia, diakoneo. Diakoneo. And so as mentioned earlier, the wordplay that English does, this, there's wordplay that English does not convey because this word, they, they said they should not serve tables, rather they will serve the word. That's actually what they say because the same word is used twice. Instead of minister the word, they will serve the word. Someone will serve the tables and someone will serve the word and they will serve the word. So who's going to do this other job? Well, the word that we call deacons deacon comes from this same word, diakonos, which means servant. Diakonos means servant. That's the word we get deacon from. It is the second of the two recognized set-apart offices in the New Testament. And so they're not directly called deacons, but what they're called to do is to be servants. And that's what a deacon is. So this distinction is, is seen elsewhere and expanded upon later, especially in Paul's qualification list in 1 Timothy 3. So they're not called deacons, but they are. the word for deacon is used in regard for their service. They're called to be the people who helped do some of the practical ministry that was beyond the disciples' scope and ability. And a major part of this purpose was to prevent and put down the murmuring that started all of this. Again, that's not just a complaint. This is discontentment and the beginnings of division within the church body. So this is done by dealing with the actual issues and helping people toward contentment where issues are overblown. So imagine the situation two ways. The Greek widows were being neglected. They should fix that. They were not being neglected, but assumed they were. They should fix that. What we see here is the apostles clarifying their calling and being faithful to what God is calling them to. They understood that both things needed to be done, the preaching of the word and the practical care of the church. And they also understood that they could not do both. They made sure to focus on what they knew was most important to them and delegate the other aspects to those who were qualified and called to that particular task. This does not mean that they literally do nothing but pray and preach, but that is their primary focus. And the other things they did as they healed often would lead to the proclamation of the gospel. And again, this is reminiscent of the advice that Moses receives from his, father, Jethro, his father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 18. Moses was personally handling every single dispute of the people. And Jethro tells him, this is no good to go and find trusted people to take care of the easier disputes and let Moses focus on leading and handling the harder disputes. This is exactly the model that the disciples follow in this process. And so as you look at your life, you must clarify what God's calling is upon your life. What has God made you to do? And specifically, what has God made you to do within the body of Christ, within the service of the church, in the service of proclaiming the gospel to all nations? What is your role within the body? What are you gifted in? What are you excited about? What are you burdened by? What things convict you and sit on your heart and you know these things need to be done? What things are necessary but uh, could attempt to get in the way of doing those things. So once you've identified the things you know, that if, if you were to say, what has God called you to? I think it's this certain thing or this area, or maybe it's a couple different areas, but, but they're not so burdensome that you can't do both. Once you've identified that, what things would prevent you from being able to do those as you know God wants you to? The first and foremost thing we must do is remove unnecessary distractions. I think within the the American church, unnecessary distractions are one of the greatest hindrances to ministry. It's things that don't matter that we end up consuming ourselves with rather than the things that do matter. But after we've removed those, we have to figure out what good things we do that get in the way of the thing we know we're called most to do. Another way of saying this, what good things are you doing that get in the way of you doing the best things you need to be doing? If there is a best, a a plan, this is God's plan for me, there are other good things you can do that are not that plan, that are not what you know God's calling you to. As a person that knows that I'm called to be a pastor, I could not be a pastor and just go and be a member of a church. But I know that's not what God has called me to do or the calling that he's placed upon my life. So in your life, what is the thing you know you are called to What are the things that would seek to prevent you from doing that? So what does this not mean? Because that's the the easy thing. Sometimes we can twist things. We we tend to do that in our lives. You should not necessarily be seeking to do less overall. Now, there are people and there are times where people are doing way too many things. But the clarification of their focus, the disciples were not saying, you guys go do this, we just want to go take a nap. They said... You all, we need somebody to deal with this important issue so that we can go and proclaim the word. And so clarifying your focus doesn't mean I'm going to step away from unimportant things and, do, and just not fill that time, unless you're a person that's doing way too much, and then that is a situation. It means you're going to get rid of those distractions or those things that are not the most important thing, so you focus more on the most important thing. It does not mean that, you don't, that if you don't like something, you're not called to it. There is no task that is beneath any person. We only delegate to focus on what matters the most. There are a lot of things that you'll have to do through your life as a believer that you aren't going to be your favorite thing to do, but it might very well be a part of what God's calling you to do, at least for a season. It is not an excuse to pass things on to others. Many times, when you have an idea or an urging to do something, you very well may be the person who's being called to do it. I don't know if you've ever encountered anyone that has that mentality. I've encountered a couple in my life that they'll, they'll come and they'll say, I have this great idea. And they'll explain this idea for a ministry or a program maybe that the church could do. Uh, and I'm not talking about anybody here, okay? Just clarify that. And they'll come and they'll say, somebody should do that. And, and after this 15-minute conversation, I'll be like, well, I kind of thought you might have been the person that should do that if you've got these ideas about it. It is not an excuse to pass things on to others. But with that being said, there are times we need to focus on what we are called to, and there's still more work that needs to be done. And when this happens, we must call others to service. We have to call others to service. Upon realizing they were not the ones to handle this, they told the people to choose from among them seven men qualified to take on this task. They even delegated the selection of the seven to the body of the church, Now, I think this was a really wise thing that they did because it ensured that the men that were selected were trusted, respected godly men among the congregation so that they can actually do what they're called to do. All of the people would be in agreement that these people would be good people to help deal with these practical matters. This was not a task simply to be taken on by anyone in the church. Seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, And the limit to seven shows that sometimes having too many people engaged in a simple task makes it more complicated. It was not that everyone who had a good reputation and was full of the Spirit and wisdom should do this. It was seven. Who are the seven people that should do this? There should be enough that they can share the burden of the work, but few enough that it can be done efficiently. So the standard of being full of the Spirit and wisdom showed showed that leadership within the church matters, no matter the area. This was something that was a different category than preaching the gospel. They still had a high standard for the people doing this task. They weren't entering the same office as the apostles, and they had different rights and responsibilities, but this did not make their role less important. If something in the church matters, it matters who we place in charge of it. They should be full of the Spirit and have wisdom that is commensurate to their position. This means that when we see tasks and roles in the church that need to be filled, we need to look within and call people to serve. We should look among ourselves and find people to do the tasks that need to be done that other serving can't take on. They should be tasks that are important enough to call someone to. The church should never waste someone's time with a position or a task that is not not one that is not necessary. They should be people who are qualified for the role And they should also be trained and instructed by others on how to fulfill that role. The calling should be based upon gifting and ability in their character and not simply filling a role. We should use wisdom and discernment to call people to things based upon things they may not yet realize about themselves. Some of the most effective people that I've served alongside in ministry are people who I approached personally and told them that I could see them serving in a way they weren't yet serving that I could see this gifting in, in, in particular area in their life, and they flourished in that area because they had an ownership and felt a calling to what they were doing. There's a big difference between we need someone to do this, who's willing, and would you do this? I could see God using you for this, in this ministry, in this area, to make amazing, an amazing difference in the life of the church. The church isn't simply about getting stuff done. It's about working together to do things to the glory and honor and praise of God. There's not a task or a role in the church that is not important. And the greatest thing we can hope for is that people take the roles they occupy and the places they serve seriously. A pastor isn't just someone who's not afraid to speak in public. A worship leader isn't just someone who can sing well. A nursery worker isn't just a babysitter. A Sunday school teacher isn't just someone who can read from a curriculum. A committee member isn't just someone who goes to a meeting. These are places and roles and and opportunities within the body to serve God and build the kingdom of God by being faithful to what God has called you to do. And if we do these things in the way that we should, if we will realize what work needs to be done, if we will make sure that we do what we're called to, and when there's things that need to be done that fall beyond what we're called to, we help find people to serve in those areas, When we do that, we can enjoy gospel efficiency. When everything is working the way it should, the church will flourish. People will do what they're called to. They'll identify and delegate when they're not called to do something. And they'll identify and empower people to take on those tasks. That's one of the key things here. It's not just, well, this is beyond what I feel called to, so I'm gonna let someone else worry about it. It's figuring out who can help do those things. The danger, there is a danger to not putting these things into place. The first danger is that something's going to get neglected. If the apostles in the situation hadn't done this, if they hadn't taken this approach and they had simply went and solved the issue and committed themselves to solving this issue, they would not be preaching the gospel in the same way they were after this. People only have so much bandwidth and ability. There's only so much that people can do. But when more people come into the picture, the overall bandwidth and ability increases. The other other potential problem is that churches rise and fall upon a handful of people. If there is no delegation, if there is no cooperation among the body and a handful of people do a lot of the work, then churches rise and fall on that same small handful of people. I've seen stories of many churches where one pastor goes and maybe plants a church and it's very successful as a charismatic speaker, he's a great leader, and then that pastor leaves that church. And that church ceases to exist within a couple years because everything that was done was done off the back of one person. There wasn't good cooperation and delegation. When the ministry load is shared, it makes sure that ministry will always continue even when changes occur. And the last problem is that people get burnt out. I've seen this happen time and time and time again where people serve for long periods of time, but then after a while they stop entirely, they are worn out and run down. They didn't delegate either because they couldn't, there was no one to step up and serve, or they wouldn't. Both happened where they wouldn't delegate or they couldn't delegate. But in the end, the church pays the price as well as the individual. But if we'll put these things into practice, we see how the apostles' leadership and delegation stopped the murmuring. The issue was dealt with, but we also see that they were able to continue to preach the word. So the practical ministry happened and the ministry of the word happened. And verse seven makes it clear that the word of God continued to spread and more people got saved. When done correctly, the delegation of leadership will lead to far better results than what is possible without it. The gospel will be preached. Practical ministry will always be done. All people will be cared for and things that need to be accomplished will be accomplished. And the gospel will spread and people will be saved. Now, at the end, it talks about the disciples in Jerusalem increased increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. One thing to note about this, the the majority group at this time of priests were Sadducees, which were the ones that don't believe in the resurrection. And so it's very likely that a number of those priests that came to salvation were among the Sadducees. And so what I want you to understand about this, these are what likely could have been considered the least likely to come to salvation— coming to salvation. Those who didn't even believe in a resurrection, they, they, they thought death was the end. But now they believe in the risen Savior because of the proclamation of the gospel. And so here's what I want you to consider today. There is work to be done. How are you using the gasoline and water that you carry? Are you using it correctly? Are you building up where you should build up? Or are you And are you putting down things that that shouldn't be happening within the church body or the opposite? What is God calling you to do? What is the calling God has in your life? Where are you called to serve within the body of Christ? Because we all have a place. We all ought to be serving in some way, shape, or form. Are you actively following this in your life? What things need to be done that you may need to delegate? What good things keep you from doing the best things? Who could you call to serve? What people do you see ability in that they are not yet realizing? What person do you see that has amazing potential to serve God in some way that they're not living into? We are called to call that out in people, to help identify that and encourage them and prepare them. Or are you a person that needs to be called out? It's often said that in churches, 20% do 80% of the work. Which part do you find yourself in? Or this morning, do you need to respond to, to Christ? No amount of serving or trying can accomplish for you what has already been done for you in Christ Jesus. The reason they had to delegate because, was because the message of the gospel was one they could not stop proclaiming. And that message is that all people are sinners and separated from God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came, lived the life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, and was raised again. So that whoever would believe might be saved. If your salvation or your understanding and your relationship with God is based off of anything other than that, hope in what Jesus has done for you, then you're not saved. If, you're, if you, your relationship with God is dependent on how hard you try or how much you've done or your attendance to church, whatever else it may be, if it's not in what Christ has done for you, you need salvation today. Are you the one in, that needs to believe for the first time today? Wherever you are, whatever it is, I, I believe that God is calling us all to something. He's calling us to be faithful, to serve Him, to be obedient What is God's calling in your life today? Would you respond to him? We're going to have a time of invitation. I'll be down front for prayer. If you have any questions, Uh, and the altar will be open as well as we worship together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this time that we can look at your word. And God, I pray that you would help just convict us, that you would help us to see this example of, of how we need to know what you've called us to and do it. And that when there's something that needs to be done that we can't do, that we would find others to do it and help equip them and empower them to do so. God, I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know you this morning, that if they've been placing their, uh, their relationship with you based off of anything other than the work done by Christ, that today would be the day they turn to you for their salvation. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning, that we'd be faithful to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.